The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. In the year 1942, the British author Dorothy Sayers wrote a little essay called Why Work? And in it, she makes some really insightful observations. One of them is this. She's talking about Christian churches in particular when she wrote, How can anyone remain interested in Christianity, which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? What she was talking about is how rarely Christians address our work and what we're going to do on Monday through Saturday, in many cases, week after week, year after year. She was concerned that people would hear from the church some moral truth or maybe even just some regular rhythms, but that they wouldn't hear how to work well. So she wrote this. Let the church remember this. Every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade. All Christian work is good work well done. And I think Sayers is getting at something close to what today's passage will get at. The first truth that today's passage will get at is that we have reason to work well as unto the Lord in the calling that God has given us. But the second main thing that this passage is dealing with and how it contributes to our understanding of work is in our relationships at work. Don't miss that at this point in the book, he's been talking about relationships in groups, husband and wife, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, parent and child, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, but now superior and subordinate, and that's Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, how it's fleshed out relationally in our work week. Now, hopefully you have the bulletin. We're doing our best to get those to you. If, if you have the bulletin, there should be four points on it that I added yesterday And Lord willing, they'll help guide us this morning. If you didn't, I'm going to say them right now and maybe you can jot them down. These will be the four principles from today's text that will hit at how to work well and how our relationships can be God-pleasing in our workplace. Here they are. Okay, number one, in Christ, superiors and subordinates can bless one another. So in Christ, superiors and subordinates in their work can bless one another. Number two... In truth, superiors and subordinates are on equal footing before our heavenly master. So number two, in truth, superiors and subordinates are on equal footing before our heavenly master. We need that reminder. I read a couple internet posts this week just preparing for this sermon. Here's one of the ones I I read. My boss is like a baby, screams to wake me up every half hour. (laughs) I like that. Shows the the conflict we have on the one hand, uh, the boss is always annoying me. On the other hand, I just wish I could be left alone so I could sleep. The second one I read, uh, my boss told me to have a good day, so I went home. <laughs> That's another interesting one. <laughs> so the principles in this text, they don't have parallel in, in us. They're, they're truth from God. So number one, in truth. We can bless one another, superiors and subordinates. Number two, we're actually equal in our footing. Now number three, in Christ, all good work well done is worship. Okay, In Christ, all good work well done is, is worship. And the fourth, final principle, and we'll look at these in turn, but the fourth and final is in the end, God will execute perfect justice. In the end, God will execute perfect justice. All right, so obviously, 
I think that the passage gives us principles for work. But to be fair, the passage uses words like master and slave or bondservant, which causes us to wince, understandably, and makes us shift uncomfortably. Because when we hear the word master or we hear the word slave, the immediate thing that comes to mind for us is the African slave trade that happened in the last few centuries, of which our country has such an awful and wicked history. So let me take a couple minutes to give some historical context that I think will help us read the Bible well, but also helpfully help us understand this passage and its continuing relevancy for us. First, let's say very clearly from the Bible that what happened in the African slave trade, especially as it was practiced in our country, is unquestionably wicked and evil. And those who used the Bible to support it did so sinfully. They either used the Bible manipulatively, in which case God will surely condemn them justly. Or they use the Bible genuinely misunderstanding it, in which case God will judge them and correct them. And those who are before the Lord now surely have received such just condemnation or correction. We should remember, though, that the sinfulness that was carried out in our country and many others through this slave trade is a sinfulness endemic to human hearts. And none of us in the room should think that we're beyond such sinfulness. All of us can have a sinful mistreatment of other people based on a way that we think they're, they're subordinate to us, based on their appearance, based on their education, based on their background. So let it never be true of us as Christians that we genuinely mistreat other people because of our smug, selfish self-righteousness. And let it never be said of a manual that this is a church that would be unwelcoming to anybody who could join us. It should never be the case. So this passage talks about something that sadly people in the name of Christ have wickedly wielded towards evil ends. They've done so wrongly. Having said that, though, let me also point out that this passage was written almost 2,000 years before all that. And this passage is not referring to the things that happen here. It's referring to a slavery that, though bad, is fundamentally different from what happened in the New World African slave trade. Let me explain a few reasons how it's different. We've lived in such an unusual time in history that we've lived without a lot of slave labor, but that was not true for thousands of years. Let me say some ways it was different in Paul's day. In Paul's day, slavery was extremely common in the Greco-Roman economy, but it was based differently than the African slave trade that happened sadly in recent centuries. Here's a few ways it was different. It was not based on kidnapping. So generally speaking, slaves were not kidnapped from their home country and brought to be used to help the economy move forward. Secondly, it was not based on one's race, race, ethnicity, or appearance. So it had nothing to do with what you look like. Third, it was not permanent. Actually, most cases lasted 10 years. So normally, if you were a slave in the Greco-Roman first century, it was a 10-year bankruptcy situation or an economic debt you had to pay off. To be clear, I'm not saying it was a good thing. I'm just saying it was a different thing than what happened more recently. And the fourth big difference is that slaves in the first century normally had at least some legal rights that they could exercise. For example, they could go to court against their owner, and we have records of them winning. Also, we have records of slave owning their own slaves. Further, slaves in the first century were not constricted to menial tasks only. So in the first century, there are professors and doctors and administrators that are slaves all over the economic marketplace. Again, these things are not good things. 
I'm just pointing out that they're different things than the things that we've experienced that we tend to bring to bear on the passage when we read about it. Slavery throughout human history has been considered a necessary way for economies to function. Think of medieval serfdom working for a feudal or a vassal. Or think even more recently in your own entertainment, if you enjoyed Downton Abbey, they have servants that live downstairs, that their entire household is for the people who live upstairs. These are not good things, but they are things that this passage, I think, actually gives the tools to overcome. And that's why F.F. Bruce wrote this. What Paul's letters do is bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. And I think he's correct. I think what we'll see as we go through today's passage is because of the way it talks about how we ought to treat one another, it argues for such a radical equality that the thought of owning someone, even economically, becomes something that's no longer plausible because of the gospel's freeing effect. See, the gospel speaks to our heart in such a way that then can radically transform even societal structures. Here are two passages that I would use. In John 8, verse 36, Jesus, talking about sin, says, If the Son of Man, Jesus, sets you free, you will be free indeed. But if you're free in your heart, free against the sinful, selfish use of other people, then that will bring about often freedom in structures. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, Paul says... If you were a bondservant when you were called, don't be worried about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. So the gospel transforms our hearts, and then it can reform our structures. But in Ephesians 6, Paul doesn't comment on the structure. He just comments on the heart in it. Let me explain one more reason why, because we're so far removed in history I know I'm giving more context than I normally would, but otherwise we'll misunderstand this. Picture that it's Sunday morning in Ephesus. And everybody's walking into the house where they're gathering as a church. They're walking in as husbands and wives. They're walking in as singles. They're walking in as parents and children. But they're also walking in as slaves and owners. Hearing the word of God together in that structure. And Paul then has this letter written so that it's publicly read to an entire church in which those dynamics are present. So here in Ephesians 6, he's not intending to comment on the goodness or badness of the structure. He comments on how you should live in the world as you find it. But if you live like Christ in the world that you find, it will change the world that you find. And that's why here... In Ephesians 6, 1, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, the way the slaves and masters are to treat one another is so radical that it transforms everything. Now, you could still be thinking, well, Josh, okay, you gave me some interesting historical background. What does that mean for me today? Let me quote Tim Keller, his book, Every Good Endeavor. Here's what he wrote. If slave owners are told they cannot manage their workers through pride and fear... How much more should that be true of employers today? And if slaves are told that they can find satisfaction and meaning in their work, how much more should that be true of workers today? You see, work today in our country, though slightly different in appearance to Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, actually is a lot more similar in treatment 
and an attitude. This is why Studs Terkel, which is like the coolest name I've ever heard for an author, (laughs) Studs Terkel wrote a book on work, and here's what he wrote in the introduction. This book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence to the spirit and to the body. It is about ulcers and accidents, shouting matches and fistfights, nervous breakdowns. It is above all about daily humiliations. To survive the day of work is triumph enough for many of the walking wounded around us. And surely if we took testimonies this morning and I asked people one at a time to tell me something hard you've endured at the workplace, nearly everybody could give testimony. So here in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, we hear radical principles that affect any relationship in the workplace and change them to be a workplace like Christ. So now let's see number one. Number one, in Christ, superiors and subordinates can bless one another in their work relationships. And let's look in God's word, Ephesians 6, verse 5. I'm going to read through verse 8. Please notice where it talks about the heart. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would obey Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, also referring to the heart. Throughout the passage, Paul is saying something completely supernatural. God in Christ can change your heart so that you actually want to bless your superior or subordinate. How can he do that? Did you see what was next to the heart in all three of the cases? Every time he mentions the heart attitude, he follows it immediately with the real person that could compel this. Look at it again. Verse 5. Obey your earthly masters, but not really them, with a sincere heart. How? As you would Christ. Verse 6. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. How? But as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. The key for how our heart can be changed to treat superiors and subordinates in a way that actually blesses them is that we see it's for Christ. We see that's the real reason that we get up and do what we do. And so now... We're going to pause on those phrases because those three phrases give us three specific ways our heart can be transformed in our work, regardless of who we are working for or who we have working for us. So first, let's look at verse five. Now we're looking a little more slowly. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters, those who are your superiors on earth, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. That phrase, fear and trembling, refers to joy and awe you have in the presence of someone. Here it's saying that we can work, even for those who are our superiors, regardless of their shortcomings, with joy because our joy is in the higher superior. It's in Christ. Thus the gospel should so affect and impact our posture from the heart out that we can go to work and actually look with joy at the person given us our duties. 
The next phrase in verse 6 goes further. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. We all know that we perform differently based on who's watching. <laughs> the right audience can draw out greater effort. I found that the cleaning of our children's rooms changes drastically based on my presence or absence, right? And surely we all know, whatever age we are in, that there's a certain person that if they come into the room, we suddenly perform better. Now, do you see what the passage is saying? We can perform our best because there is someone who we always have that we desire to please who is present, and he's the Lord Christ. In fact, doesn't he make the point, we don't actually do our work for the people. Not ultimately. Now, verse 7, we'll say it even stronger. Render service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Verse 7 makes so clear that the work isn't for the people ultimately. It's for the Lord ultimately. And yet it doesn't mean you can skip over the people because it does say render service. So it is done with obeisance to those to whom we answer, but it's done well because we know it's for the Lord ultimately. Have you thought about that in your calling? Whether you're cooking or building or writing or researching or visiting or talking or meeting, if you do it for someone you really, really love... You do it differently. If you're a lawyer and you have to defend a family member, there's a little extra motivation. If you're baking something and it's for an important event for someone you love, there's a little extra motivation. This text says that extra motivation in all work is that it's actually for the Lord. So the first part of verses 5 through 8 is about how we can honor our earthly superiors because actually it's for the Lord. But now verse 9 flips it in a way that was culturally scandalous. It's that shocking. Look in verse 9. Masters do the same. I wish I could help you understand how shocking it is that this phrase exists in the Bible. Remember, picture that Sunday in the first century where everybody from Ephesus is coming in here. And imagine the landowners are sitting next to their serfs and they're nodding along in verses 5 through 8. Yeah, that's right. You need to do good work. You need to do it from the heart. You need to really put in your best effort. And then verse 9, yeah, and you need to do the same to them. What an incredible statement. Peter O'Brien writes, It's a shocking exhortation that first century Greco-Roman world are told to treat their slaves the same way when the Romans, uh, the Roman philosopher Seneca said, All slaves are enemies. Many masters were tyrants and abusive. They treated their slaves with beatings or sexual harassment or sold males away from the rest of their household. So Paul's statement to treat them just as well as the others ought to treat you in love for the Lord is outrageous. In fact, the next phrase is even more striking. It says, stop your threatening. Because I've been in this passage with you for weeks, we've been going over the same text over and over, and then you start to observe things, and here's what I noticed. The husbands and wives are only given positive exhortations. 
The very first negative exhortation is given to fathers in verse 4. Do not provoke them to anger or exasperate them. And the second negative exhortation is given here to masters in verse 9, meaning the only two people who are told not to do something are the fathers and the masters. The only two people told not to do something are people in a position to really harm those who are underneath them. You see? Everybody else is only given a positive thing. Love, respect, obey, yield, encourage. Only the people in positions of power are told, now do not wield that in a way that hurts those who are under your care. So masters are being told, yes, God may have entrusted you in his providence in a position of influence and authority, but you better not yield that poorly. Why not? Look at how the verse ends. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. Reminding superiors that they have a much higher superior accomplishes two things. First, it warns them, you will be held to account. But second, it informs them, you ought to exercise your authority the way he would and the way he does, God, with you. So number one was superiors and subordinates can actually bless one another. Now that might still mean you remain in that position on earth for some time. Warren Wearsby helpfully writes, The Christian faith does not always erase social or cultural distinctions. The servants are still called servants. The masters are still called masters. But the Christian faith radically transforms the heart, giving us a new motivation, even if not a new organization. That leads us to number two. Number one was in Christ we can bless one another. Now number two, in truth, superiors and subordinates actually have equal footing before our heavenly master. I want to show you that from the text in two places. First look in verse eight. Verse eight, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this you will receive back from the Lord. Notice whether he is bond servant or free. So whatever your status is does not change the fact that the Lord will remunerate in grace. And then, of course, verse 9, where the masters are told, you have a master who's master over you <laughs> as well as over them. The fact that Paul even addresses the slaves is historically without precedent. We have books that have survived that are written to household slaves in the first century, but they're only addressing the masters. Paul addresses the slaves. He actually spends more time addressing the slaves and gives them dignity that no one else had. The philosopher Aristotle, who lived about 400 years before Paul wrote this, but what he said helps you get an understanding of how people thought of people who were in slavery. He wrote, it is clear that some men by nature are free and others slaves, and that for the latter, slavery is both expedient and right. You see? So everyone in Paul's day would have assumed that people are beneath you. And Paul says, no, no, actually you have equal footing beneath our master in heaven. Now you could say this morning, well, Josh, surely we don't have that problem today. Surely today in our workplaces, we don't treat people as beneath us. Oh, yes, we do. R.C. Sproul uh, was visiting the hospital. And when he was in the hospital, he was just paying attention to how people treated one another. 
And he noticed a conversation in a room. First, the elite surgeons walked in, and then the general doctors walked in, and then you had the advanced specialist registered nurses, and then you had the assistant registered nurses, and then at the very end came the health and sanitation people. And the nurse that was in the middle was totally focused and alert to what the surgeons had to say. Every word dripping from the doctors was of vital significance. But when they left the room and the health and sanitation came, who simply tried to greet her, the nurse walked past without even looking him in the face. Do we still have improper caste-like systems in our modern-day workplace? Absolutely we do, and we ought not. This is part of what this passage is trying to remind us. We are actually all on equal footing before the Lord, who is our master. This passage gives nobility to even tasks that seem menial, but it also relativizes those who think they're in important positions by holding them accountable. So here are some application questions for you and I in our own heart. In your own heart, Christian, do you actually look down on people around you because you've started to assume they're in a category beneath you? If you go out to lunch this afternoon, how will you treat those who serve you food? If there are projects being done on your house, how do you treat those who are painting, who are mowing, who are retrieving your recycling? Is there any part of you that thinks, definitely, I'm better than they are? Let us confess that is sin. But now on the other side, those of us who have those who are over us, and we all do, Do you sneer at people that God has ordained to have oversight over you? Do you hate those who write policies, hire the talent that you have to work with, organize the state, (laughs) or set business goals or values? See, the text is actually cutting both ways at our inner heart's posture towards anyone who we are called to work with and not treating them under. All right, that leads us now to a third point. In Christ, all good work, well done, is an act of worship. And I want to show you that now from verse 6. In verse 6, he's talking to those who are in slavery, and much of that was menial work. But notice how he describes it in verse 6. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God. Wait, you mean those who are working on the property are doing God's will? Yes. Yes. Martin Luther put his finger on this when he found in the Psalms that God promises to feed and clothe people on this planet. And he thought about it long enough to realize, oh, that's how God does it. He does it through people faithfully doing all those things that you can just ignore that are happening around you. They're doing the will of God. In fact, verse 8 goes even further. Not only is all good work God's work, but verse 8, whatever someone does, he will receive back from the Lord. So God has an interest in all good work and an appropriate response to it. This is why Dorothy Sayers' concern is appropriate. Everybody needs to know that their work is worship. Their work matters, and it matters to God. This is a good reminder for me because... My work, in large part, is to help equip you for your work. 
And in large part, my calling is so that Sunday will be for Monday. So that you'll come here more equipped from truth to live out an impact in the calling that God has given you. And to live it out well. Because work does not only have instrumental value as a means to an end. Work has intrinsic value. The work itself is a way to worship your Heavenly Father who gave you those gifts for that reason. In whatever season or calling you're in. Martin Luther King Jr. said it well when he wrote, No work is insignificant. All labor that uplifts humanity has dignity and importance and should be undertaken with painstaking excellence. He's right. Our work is for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. So doing it the best we can with ethics and excellence is a way to worship our Lord. So let's click on that a little bit more. Since our work is ultimately for God, that dignifies all good work. So if you're cooking, imagine God is the person who's going to eat it. If you're cleaning, imagine it's his floor. If you're engineering, it's his program. It's his software. If you're making charts and graphs and reports, it's his resources. If you're responding to emails, imagine he's the recipient. So all work is for God. That elevates it all. But all work also, remember, is under God. And that means it ironically relativizes all work. Think about it this way. Since work is for God, but also since work is under God, and he's the judge of all of it, then that means work cannot be a place that I find myself. Work cannot be about making much of me or making a name for myself or fulfilling myself because work is something that is under the purview of the master who made it. And that leads me to number four, the final point. In the end, God will execute perfect justice. Let me try to illustrate the balance that I just tried to show from the text that it's there. On the one hand, this elevates all good work. And on the other hand, it relativizes Work. Here's what I mean. On the one hand, it elevates all good work. Years ago, I lived in South Carolina, and I worked for Granger. I worked in their distribution center, their big, big factory. And I'd been there like two weeks, and Granger has this recording system in the factory. You, you move products and put them on trucks, and they record the effectiveness you have, and they give you a scoring point. And they put it on the screen, and everybody can see it. And I'd been there like two weeks, and over lunch... Some good, sweet Southern people, which were still new to me at this time in my life, took me aside and said, son, we, we need to talk to you about something. I said, sure, what's going on? And they said, you're doing a little too well. <laughs> I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? And they said, listen, son, I've been here a long time. And if you keep working like that, they're going to expect us to start working like that. You can't be doing that, you know? Now, I don't know if any of you work for the government, so... Um, I'm going to say some things about the government. Uh, before working for Granger, I worked for the post office. Uh, my dad retired from the post office. And when I was in my college summers, I worked for the United States Postal Service. I couldn't work at his plant, but I worked all over the Detroit area. And what I found at the post office is the post office is a government job, and it has a very powerful union. And when I was working there for the summer, they took me aside much more sternly. And I remember the union rep saying to me, listen, you're in college and you're just here for the summer. But if you don't slow down, they're going to expect us to deliver mail as quickly as you are. And I've spent 30 years making sure we can work as little as possible. You know? <laughs> and I was, I was probably like 20 years old. And so I responded 
probably like, this is what's wrong with America or, you know, something, <laughs> something like that. But what uh, this passage does is it elevates all work in such a way that all of it is to be done well. So no matter who tells you not to work well, of course, we want to be considerate of others, but we work for the Lord and we ought to do whatever our best is in our work. But on the flip side, do you see how it relativizes work because it says that your boss isn't actually your boss? All right, so what about if you're in white collar professions, and I've been around those two, and I have a number of friends who were in med school, and then they were in a fellowship, and they were competing with one another with incredible cutthroat society to earn that last spot on the law firm or as a CPA or as the new surgeon. And if Granger's problem was underwork, the law firm's problem is overwork. If Granger's problem was, you need to slow down because work isn't that important, the problem on the other side was, you need to do anything you can to earn the last spot because what that earthly boss thinks of you is everything. And this passage actually says, no, what, what Jesus thinks is everything. So you don't underwork, but you also don't overwork because you're not working for anybody here. And if you put the four of those together, here's what I think it means. The Christian view of work is, yes, work is instrumental. It's a means to an end, but it's more than that. Work is intrinsic. It has value as worship, even as you do it. But it's more than that. Work is also eternal in its importance and significance. And I've been asking God to help me say this well. Because what I'm trying to say is that God is telling us that he calls us to a vocation beyond our occupation. He calls us to a kind of work that we can fulfill in, but also beyond our work. Here's what I mean. Do you remember when Jesus went to fishermen and he said, I will make you what? Do you know the rest? Fishers of men. Now, is he against fishing? No. Didn't he fish with them again? He even gave them tips on how to fish better, cast the net on the other side of the boat. He wants them to be great fishers, but more than just great fishers. You see? God wants you to be a great engineer, but he has an engineering beyond engineering. He wants you to be a great nurse, but he has health care beyond this world. See, whatever your calling is, he wants you to be great at it, but not great only in it, also great Beyond it. And the best way I can illustrate this is going to be very, very painful for me because the only illustration I can give is to say negative things about a Michigan alumnus and positive things about a Michigan State alumnus. This is very hard for me to do. But the only way I can illustrate it well is to show the difference between the way Tom Brady, the Michigan quarterback and alumnus, approached football with how a Michigan State alumnus approached it. We all love Tom Brady. He's, he's a saint in the state of Michigan. But in 2005, he was interviewed by 60 Minutes uh, by Steve Croft, and here's an excerpt of the interview. He had just won his third Super Bowl. He had married a supermodel, and he was living a life at 27 that the vast majority of the population dreams of but never comes close to achieving. So Steve Croft asked him, what have you learned about yourself with all this unprecedented success. And here's what Brady said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. 
I've reached my goal, my dream, my life, and I think, God, it must be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's cracked up to be. I mean, I'm 27, and what else is there for me? To which CBS correspondent Steve Croft replied, What's the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew. Now, we're almost 20 years from that interview. And professionally, he achieved even more success and has lost his family and his way. And now I have to contrast him painfully with the Michigan State quarterback. (laughs) The Michigan State quarterback is Kirk Cousins. He's about 10 or 12 years younger than Tom is. He played through Michigan State, uh, and he went to church at Kevin DeYoung's church, um, who pastored at that time in East Lansing, Michigan. Now he pastors in Charlotte. And Kirk Cousins has always had a vibrant walk with the Lord that I didn't know about because I didn't want to root for a Michigan State guy, so I didn't follow him very well. But my wife and I were watching a behind the scenes about his life, and we were amazed of how he responded this past year. He now quarterbacks for the Minnesota Vikings, and this last year he had the best season of his career. He has spent his whole life as kind of a journeyman quarterback, but finally he had like a 14 or 15 win year, and things were as good as they're ever going to be. And then in the opening round, they drew the lowest seed, the New York Giants, and they lost the game. The whole season's over. Here he's looking at his life and his career, and everything that he's tried for now at the late stage of his career seems out of reach. On the drive home from the game, he's talking with his wife and processing the game. And that evening, he goes home to his children, and this is on the video. It's incredible. And as he tucks them in, he sings to them, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And as he's tucking them in, it is so vibrantly clear that for Tom, he worships the work. But for Kirk, the work is just a way to worship the Lord. And if he succeeds, fine. But if he doesn't win the earthly approval, he has the heavenly one. See, how does Kirk live so well when Tom lives so poorly? And the clue is in the text. Look back up to verse 5. I scanned on it before. I'm going to drill on it now. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And when I read that, I thought, wait, Lord, you can't be saying that. Because Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who works in you both to will and to do in his good pleasure. Lord, you can't be saying we give fear and trembling to another mortal. Because fear and trembling is only for you. But then I kept reading. That's not reverse five hence. We don't give our fear and trembling to our earthly masters exclusively or ultimately. We're able to do that with a sincere heart. Notice then in verse five, as you would Christ. Fear and trembling means to have joy and awe in the presence of someone. If you have joy and awe that Jesus Christ has forgiven my sin, God is my father. My home is in heaven. I cannot be forsaken. I know who I am and I know where I'm going. Then everything else is relativized in its proper place. As Psalm 130 verse 4 says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
Joy and awe in the presence of Jesus enables trust in Jesus, even in our work. Because if Jesus is really my master, then no human approval and no career ups and downs change the solid rock on which I serve. Let's pray together this morning. God, I pray that you would powerfully transform our hearts according to this passage. All of us have people that are our superiors that we answer to. We have boards, we have shareholders, we have clients, we have customers. We have authorities that govern our state and our city and our workplace. Lord, help us to serve Jesus in such a way that we can serve them and actually bless them. In the short term, that may be painful. In the long term, it will be profoundly wonderful. Also, Lord, all of us probably have people that work under us, and it'd be so easy to use them or take advantage of them or to treat them harshly to build our own self-accomplishments. But instead, Lord, we can empty ourselves and serve them and bless them and make sure that their best interests are taken care of. But, Lord, this cannot happen if the person we live for is ourself. Because then we will treat work as something we worship because we need it to give us something that only Jesus Christ can give us. So, Lord, honestly, I pray, I wish Tom Brady would hear this and, and come to Jesus, you know. And I wish that for anyone here today who thinks that they can satisfy their heart apart from the satisfaction that only he gives. But, Lord, let us be models in our work of an eternal and abiding joy that is not tied to anything here. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.